0: Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through to 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him.:
1: Father God, as we dig into one of the trickier sections of your work. We ask that your Holy Spirit who inspired Daniel to record it would open it up for us. At the end of a full and a good Lord's Day, we pray that you would give us fresh energy. That spiritually we would come alive as your word speaks to us this evening. And Father, we pray, I pray specifically that it would be your word that is heard. As we step into difficult waters In your word, deep waters. Father, it's so easy for us and for me this evening to stray from your truth. Father, I pray that your spirit would preserve me from doing so, that anything that is not helpful and good and true would be quickly forgotten, but that the deep, plain truths that are wonderfully to be seen in this text would embolden our hearts and our faith and make us men and women whose courage in your word is all the greater from this evening. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we saw how the whole of Daniel 9 holds together as a chapter. We've picked up this story of Daniel for the last number of weeks in our evenings, and we're getting to that point now where we're nearly 70 years into this exile, and Daniel's doing his Bible reading, coming through Jeremiah, and suddenly has this great discovery, suddenly realizes that he is just about to see the end of the exile. God's going to rescue his people. He's going to bring them back to worship him in a rebuilt Jerusalem, um, which we might have thought would have brought all sorts of joy and excitement, but as he looks out on the people, he realizes that they're not living as Jeremiah Call them to live. Seven whole decades of judgment in a foreign land for their disobedience and sin, and the people haven't turned back to God at all. So all of that great discovery leads Daniel to his great prayer in the first half of the chapter. And he prayed, as we saw last week, in sackcloth and ashes. He's, he's confessing the sins of the people, and he is pleading with God. Not because the people deserved it. They didn't. He's pleading on the basis of the covenant and character of God. That's Daniel's only hope. He prayed, verse 4, that the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, he's praying to that God, verse 9, that he would continue to be merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him, knowing, verse 18, That we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. That's what we saw last week in this great prayer. And as we pick into verse 20, Daniel's in the middle of that prayer. He's recorded it for us, but to go to it live, as it were, Daniel's in the middle of this prayer. And if you look at the words in verse 20, he's layering on the urgency of his prayer. He's speaking and praying and confessing his sin and making his request to the Lord. It's as though he's just overwhelmed with the need to pray. And although we don't know when he started, verse 21 tells us he was still praying about the time of the evening sacrifice. I love that little detail. It's been almost 70 years since Daniel was in Jerusalem. (laughs) This man's in his early 80s. He hasn't seen a sacrifice offered since his early teenage years. The temple was destroyed more than 50 years ago, which means no one's seen a sacrifice offered for more than that period of time. But Daniel is such a faithful man of God that everything about him is centered on worshiping God. The Babylonians could have taken Daniel out of Jerusalem, but they couldn't have taken Jerusalem out of Daniel. His heart, his, his time zone, his whole vision of life is completely taken up with worshiping God. And in the middle of this urgent prayer, the angel Gabriel suddenly appears, who we definitely met back in chapter 8, maybe also in chapter 7. But God dispatches Gabriel again to give Daniel great assurance. Great assurance about two things. Big picture level, personal level. At the big picture level, and we're going to get into all of these details in just a minute, God's great plan of salvation is a big word of assurance from God through Gabriel to Daniel. That's the big picture vision. And we will get into the details of the vision in just a minute. And when you start hearing them, it might feel a little bit overwhelming. It will feel quite a lot overwhelming. But what's the purpose of the vision? Why does God give it to Daniel? Look in verse 22. It literally begins, He made me understand and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Verse 23, Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Do you get the the purpose? Even if the content's really complicated, the purpose of the vision, yes, is confusing. Yes, this lovely description of consider the word. The idea is you're going to have to work hard to understand what I'm saying. But it's for your good. It's so that you would have understanding. And the whole point is that God wants Daniel to know that even though his work with his people will be slower and harder, Than the people would have chosen, God wins. God wins, no enemy can stand in his way, and all things will work according to his plan. That's the big picture that God is giving to Daniel to assure him of what is about to happen. But there's a wonderfully personal assurance too in verse 23. Gabriel tells Daniel that as soon as Daniel began to pray, Gabriel's dispatched to answer the prayer, for you are highly esteemed or greatly loved. And we touched on that briefly last week, just to think how beautifully encouraging that would have been for Daniel. After nearly 70 years of faithfully serving God in exile, when The the remnant of the faithful Israelites would have dwindled and dwindled and dwindled, even from the very small number at the very beginning. Here is Daniel being told that God himself personally loves Daniel. That changes your life. And I hope that love has changed your life too. When he was 49 years old, the minister and hymn writer, Philip Doddridge, knew that he was coming to the end of his life. He went to spend a brief period of time with some friends in Bath, and the friends came upon him in his bedroom and found him weeping over his open Bible, weeping over this verse. O Daniel, a man greatly beloved Philip knew that the assurance God had given Daniel God had given Philip through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Philip knew that he was loved by the God of heaven and earth and for Philip that was the greatest thing that could possibly be said of him or of anybody else And I hope that you know it's true of yourself this evening. Not because you've earned it, but because your trust and confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they've got these two wonderful assurances. The personal, the big picture. And then Gabriel gives Daniel this great vision of the 77s. And in the broadest possible terms, the great encouragement, the great answer to Daniel's prayer is God wins. No enemy can stand in his way and his plan will be accomplished as he ordained it. That's the main thing that is the plain thing. Big picture. The detail beneath is all really rather complicated. And every single commentator that you will read on Daniel 9 will tell you this is the most complicated section in the entire book and that this is the only thing that they all agree on. (laughs) People will debate everything. The timeline, whether the 77s are literal time periods that we can calculate in weeks of years, or, or whether they're symbolic of perhaps less specific periods of time. There's debate whether the, if you look in verses 25 and 26, whether the anointed one there in those two verses is the same person or different people. And that all turns, believe it or not, on a little Hebrew accent, a mark. In the Hebrew text. And once you've worked that out, you've then got to decide whether the anointed one is the same person or a different person as the ruler or prince in verse 26. And then you get to verse 27, and who on earth is doing what in verse 27? Is the he who confirms a covenant with many and puts an end to sacrifice and offering the evil ruler in verse 26? Or is he the anointed one who is put to death? By the end of this evening, hopefully, you will know a little bit more clearly how we might be able to answer at least some of those questions. But all of those questions, I hope, will have you thinking that we step into Hebrews of Daniel 9 with a lot of humility. We believe, don't we, as a church, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But... That doesn't mean that all Scripture is equally easy to understand. In its chapter on the Scriptures, the Baptist Confession of Faith says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. If you read the rest of that section, what it goes on to say is, The things that you need to know to be a Christian are perfectly clear. And can be believed and obeyed. But there are passages in the scripture that remind us that we are finite and fallen creatures. And it shouldn't surprise us that there are parts of God's inspired word that is hard for us to understand. Daniel 9 is one of those passages. Godly scholars have wrestled with this text for centuries. So we need to be honest about the fact that we will not answer every question that we might have in our minds this evening. And that's okay. Okay. I want to serve you as best I can. So, what do we need to bear in mind when we come to tricky passages like this? Firstly, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. When you come to a hard section in the Bible, one of the things you need to do is make sure you turn to other passages in the Bible that are perhaps a bit easier to understand to help those passages interpret the trickier passage. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we especially need to see how one passage sits in the context of its context. And that's especially true in Daniel 9. What have we seen all the way through Daniel 1 to 8? We've seen that there is this wonderful picture of God's sovereignty over everything. And this vision in Daniel 9 is not a completely different story. (laughs) God is building on the visions that he's already given to Daniel. He's applying it specifically to God's people, which means as we see how God has been sovereign over the statue of the nations in Daniel 2 and over the beasts of the nations in Daniel 7, God is just as sovereign over the ruler who will destroy Jerusalem in Daniel 9. They are helping us understand how to interpret one another. You must let Scripture interpret Scripture. Secondly, we need to remember that in apocalyptic, end times, passages like this, the writers use a lot of symbolism, which shouldn't surprise us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. If you were somehow enabled to see the end of time, do you think you could actually write it all down in words? <laughs> think about the gravity of everything that would unfold. It's beyond our minds to be able to communicate all of that. And so when you get to passages like Daniel and Revelation and Ezekiel and others, very often there's symbolism that is a part of the way that people in Babylon and in Israel would have written forms part of their writing. It's to help us try and understand something that's almost incommunicable because of its extent and its vastness. So here we have numbers like 7 and 10 that are used... Symbolically, to show completeness and fulfillment. And we need to be careful when we get into the text not to push the numbers further than the authors intended. Thirdly, God gave Daniel this vision in response to his prayer. So often when we get into a text like this, we're so excited to understand what's going on with the 77s and who's who in the vision that we lose sight of the fact that this was a vision given by God to answer Daniel's prayer. He wanted Daniel to understand something of the future of God's people. So yes, what does Daniel know? That the prophecy of Jeremiah is about to come true and that the Israelites will indeed be rescued and taken back and will rebuild the city and the temple. It's a good thing that Daniel's longing for that but Jerusalem is not going to be the place of peace and prosperity that it had been previously in fact of everything that's going to be rebuilt in time it would be destroyed and what God is seeking to do is help Daniel manage his expectations in all of the excitement that Daniel and the others may have had about going back, God is helping them see that his plan for his people will be slower and more difficult than they might have hoped. The restoration of the land isn't going to bring about the restoration of everything. Many of you will have heard Eugene Peterson's lovely description that God is preparing, in this case, Daniel and his people for a long obedience in the same direction. And that would have been as hard for them to have heard as it is for us. We want a God with microwavable ways, don't we? We want God to just do stuff take away the pain, take away the waiting, take away the anxiety, take away the struggle, just hit the done button. But that's not God's ways. Neither has it ever been his ways. And this vision is part of God's gift to Daniel to understand his plan. So, how should we understand verses 24 to 27? Well, on the understanding that I reserve the right to say in the future that I was wrong, first thing we need to see is how the text hangs together Verse 24 describes the whole of the 77s. Verses 25 to 27 then fill out the details of the same period of time. So verse 25 describes the first 69 sevens. and verses 26 and 27 describe the 70th, the final seven. But verse 24 is an overarching statement of this whole period of time and. At the end of those 77s, seven at the culmination of this vision in verse 24, we are told six things will happen. Three are negative, three are positive. Transgression will finish. There'll be an end to sin, and wickedness will be atoned for. When God has dealt with sin, then he promises. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The Hebrew doesn't specify whether it's a place or a person. It just says the most holy. Now, you're sitting here with a Bible of some description in your lap. The whole Bible, not just the old covenant, but the old and the new. What does this describe? It's the finished work of Jesus, isn't it? It's the work that he would accomplish at the cross and will apply fully, forever, when he returns and brings in the new creation. That's where righteousness will dwell forever. Nothing short of that is going to fully satisfy all of verse 24 in this vision of what is going to happen. And if the finish line of the 77s is the end of all things, that helps us scale the rest of the 77s. Now, if you accept that verse 24 is describing all the way to the very end, at least the final period of sevens can't be a literal period of seven years because we're still in that period of time. It's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross. We're still waiting for his return, which is the only point when he's going to usher in the new creation, which will be the home of everlasting righteousness. When all of prophecy will be finished and fulfilled and the most holy will be anointed. Now, nothing I can see in the text suggests that we should treat the 70th seven differently to any of the other sevens. Which leads me to think that we should view all of the periods of time symbolically without being too dogmatic about the dates. But, Gabriel does give Daniel more detail about how this vision is going to be be unfolding. So verse 25, we're told that from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, there are all sorts of discussions about whose word it is that Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. And you can ask me at some point this week, if you like, about some of the options. Personally, I would lean towards it's describing King Cyrus, who in the first chapter of Ezra makes this amazing announcement. 538 BC, the king of Persia gives the order not only to allow the Jews to go home, but to be given all the help that they need in order to rebuild the city. And if you've never studied the book of Ezra, that's because you've joined our church since 2018. When we went through the book. And you can jump on the website and you can listen through that series when you have time. Now then comes this really interesting question of how we're supposed to split the next periods of time. Now if you've got the NIV that we're re- we've read this evening, um, look at verse 25. Is Gabriel saying that the anointed one will come after 69 sevens? which is what the NIV suggests. I don't know whether they... uh, Sorry, the highlighting hasn't come out very helpfully there. But you can almost see that, hopefully, in your text. Or if you're using the ESV, is Gabriel saying that the anointed one will come after the seven weeks and then there'll be another period of 62 weeks? Now, all of that difference depends on one little Hebrew accent called the Athnak pause. And that will determine whether you read those two periods together, 7 plus 62, or whether you read them separately. How does that make any difference? Let me show you. If you look in verse 25, if you read them separately, the anointed one comes after the first seven sevens, whatever that exact period of time is, and can't therefore be the anointed one in verse 26. Now, before you panic and think, well, hang on a minute, Every time I see in my Bible the word anointed one, it must be talking about Jesus, that isn't actually true. <laughs> anointed one in the Bible is a description of somebody who's been anointed and set apart for some office or task. And in the Hebrew, it's not actually saying the anointed one. Gabriel says a anointed one or an anointed one. So if an anointed one is being described as appearing after these seven sevens, Gabriel might have been looking forward to Ezra, Nehemiah, or Malachi. One of those key men who were used by God to rebuild the city and the temple. But if you read the period as one block of 69 sevens, then the anointed one in verse 25 is the same anointed one as verse 26. At which point you might say, well, then why would you divide the time periods? Perhaps because what Gabriel was trying to do was to give the people this wonderful assurance that after a shortish period, seven sevens, the city would be rebuilt. I think that's why there's the description of the streets and the moat, trench, nobody's entirely sure. I think it's a casual description. You know, in Hebrewism, it often has mirrorism. So we describe day and night, that means the whole thing. We describe heaven and earth. That's the whole of space. You describe the street inside the city and the moat outside the city. It's describing the totality of the city. So it could well be that Gabriel is trying to give Daniel the confidence to know that after a fairly short period of time, the city will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. But after that, for 62 sevenths, before the anointed one arrives, there will be times of trouble. Now, if you know anything about the period of history, from the rebuilding of the second temple all the way through to the time of Christ, you'll know that's what Israel experienced. You'll know that's what the Jewish nation went through. And then verses 26 and 27 are describing this final seven, when the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Now, go back to verse 24. Let's keep That big picture in mind. What is the goal of this whole vision? It is at the end of the 77s, God is going to accomplish his saving plan through the first and second comings of his son. We know that with the whole of our Bible in our laps. So as you get into this final seven, we are right up to the climax of this vision where we're going to see God's plan for the salvation of all people in the person of his son. And central to its fulfillment is that the anointed one will be killed and seemingly left with nothing. This prophecy was written more than 500 years before Jesus lived and died. Isn't that an astonishing description of the cross? Indeed, it is the only way that Daniel, or Philip Doddridge, or you, or me, can be greatly loved by God. For the anointed one to give himself and seemingly have nothing for himself. It's a wonderful description of what Matthew reminded us of this morning. The substitution, the swap of what happens at the cross. And here is this wonderful description because it's exactly what happened at the cross. And what follows is just as accurate. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city And the sanctuary. Again, if you know anything of first century history, you'll know that in 70 AD, the Roman ruler Titus destroyed Jerusalem and decimated the temple. With his acts of wickedness and destruction, Titus ended the cultic nation of Israel. And verse 27 gives us a bit more detail about this final period, which means. More things to be less clear about. <laughs> uh, most of all is, who is the he in verse 27? Who is the he in verse 27? Some would understand the he in the first half of the verse to be referring to Jesus. And if you have that in your mind as you read the first half of the verse, it makes sense. Through his work on the cross, Jesus ushered in the new covenant with many. What's the wonderful vision of Hebrews? Hebrews. It's that many, 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 many people, Jew and Gentile alike, have been brought into the new covenant. What's the wonderful picture of Hebrews about Jesus' sacrifice? It's that it fulfills all the old covenant sacrifices and is the end point of all sacrifices because Jesus has paid it all. But the second half of the verse isn't describing Jesus. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's not Jesus. And there's nothing in the text to suggest that the person Gabriel is talking about changes person partway through the verse. So I think (laughs) it's better... If you go back to verse 26, to see the reference to the anointed one who will be put to death and will have nothing. That's the reference to Jesus, and that's where the reference to Jesus ends. For the rest of verse 26 and verse 27, I think what's being described is the wicked ruler who will follow. Which means that the covenant that he establishes is a wicked covenant which means that he stops the sacrifices and offerings being made, not because he's fulfilled the Old Covenant, but because of his wickedness. He stops the people from doing that and that he sets up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, there's all the big picture of the detail. How would this have been heard? This would have been terrifying for Daniel to hear, especially when we see that the end of verse 26 describes human history after the destruction of Jerusalem. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. You remember scriptures to interpret scripture? I think what Gabriel is doing here is he's doing something very similar to what happened with the four beasts in chapter 7. If you can remember when Matthew preached through that text, he explained that beasts 1, 2, and 3 are reasonably easy to identify as the three empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But when you get to the fourth beast, it's harder to be so sure. Certainly, there's a lot in the fourth beast that was fulfilled in Rome. But as those horns rose up out of its head, if you can remember the, the vision description of this fourth beast... There was that wonderful insight from Matthew that we need to see that what was beginning with the Roman Empire is a description of what will continue in all the wicked kingdoms that will come before Jesus Christ returns. And I think Gabriel's doing the same thing here. Daniel 7. The evil that begins with the Roman Empire continues as a description of all wickedness. What's going on here? The final seven describes a ruler who will destroy Jerusalem and the sacrifices and set up an abomination, and that definitely happened in AD 70, but more than that, war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed, at which point you might think, well, it's even worse than I thought. Until the but. Verse 27, this wicked ruler will set up an abomination that causes desolation, but only until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. There's Daniel, hoping for the return, hearing that it's going to take longer, that the rebuilt city is going to be destroyed, hearing that war and desolation is going to come, and God says, but... There is a boundary to that wickedness. There is a judgment for that evil. So you step back to the big picture of what God is teaching Daniel here. The big picture is that his vision is an answer to the prayer. The people will return to Jerusalem and it is right that he should long for it. But in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, God wanted Daniel to see beyond these things to what they foreshadowed, however painful they may be. God's ultimate purpose wasn't a temple made with hands and a holy place entered but once a year. His Son was the place in which men and women would approach God. So ultimately, for Daniel and for you and me this evening, what is the big picture of Daniel 9? God wins. No enemy can stand in his way. His son's sacrifice has fully dealt with our sin and his plan will be accomplished. But it won't be fast. And one of the great struggles for God's people all the way through human history has been that we struggle with the fact that evil seems to win that God's ways seem slow to come to fulfillment. It's hard to be a minority. It's hard to constantly be feeling like we're on the losing side. Daniel 9 is one of God's gifts to us to help us have courage in the face of all of the slow progress to help us see that God is indeed working out his plans and purposes. And one day, everlasting righteousness will reign